Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Mike DiBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, for our continuing look at key corruption cases over the years. In this exploration, we're going to look at some pharmaceutical cases and see if we can mine those for what it meant at the time, what it means now, and what it may be uh, mean in the future. So, Mike, uh, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be back and looking forward to, to this discussion about the pharma industry. So, Mike, uh, we've selected three cases or three enforcement actions, rather, uh, to look at uh, an early one with Eli Lilly, which was an SEC enforcement action, and then two um, other pharmaceutical actions, uh, Fresenius and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Teva had uh, a pretty large fine of five, over $500 million. Fresenius came in at 231 Lilly was uh, back at uh, $29 million. But... In many ways, I found Lilly the most interesting and indeed the one that resonates with me the most even until today. This was a 2012 case, and Lilly had four separate bribery schemes in four different countries. Uh, one was um, sort of a traditional corrupt agent, which we had seen several of by that time, and we continued to see them. But there were two others that we really saw for the first time. Uh, uh, one was in Brazil where the sales model of Eli Lilly was a distributor <laughs> and, uh, they had a distributor program, but they let one distributor through the program who was clearly engaged in bribery and corruption, uh, to the point where they were given a distributor discount outside the range of the standard distributor range of their, uh, program in, in that country. Uh, if there was ever a question previous to Lilly of whether distributors were covered by the FCPA, this, this case answered it. But the more interesting one that still resonates with me was a bribery scheme in Poland. And here they focused on uh, Director General of Polish Health Services in one state in Poland, Silesia. This Director General had a legitimate charity uh, ongoing in Poland that renovated castles. And so donations were made <clears throat> to the charity. And um, the charity had nothing to do with health care. And the donations were relatively small, uh, between three to $7,000. But the SEC in the settlement order uh, put a little cute chart together, or handy chart, I should say, which was date of donation, date of contract signed or date of payment made, and they literally were then 24 hours of each other. So that was pretty clearly a situation where charitable donations were used uh, to cover uh, bribe payments, even if it was a legitimate charity and there were legitimate payments to a legitimate charity. But there was one other thing that struck me about this case that I think is with us till today and will be with us going forward, which was the following. The payments of... Uh, to Lilly from the Salesian Health Service took that province or state to the number one state in Poland for revenue for Lilly. And it took the country of Poland from number 20 in their Europe, uh, North Africa region, uh, what I would call a Maya, but uh, from not 23 to number three. Uh, and that's how significant the profits were. And that became, I think, the basis of 
modern data analytics. Because uh, if you looked at that from a business perspective, you would say, wow, how did we do so well? Do we have a new product? Do we have a new service? Do we have a sale? Do we have a super salesman? Uh, do we have a great sales team? How can we take that increase in sales and replicate it on a business basis? And that's things businesses do every day. Uh, but no one had done that from the compliance perspective. And so I think people started thinking about, if you've got a huge spike in sales, you might need to look at it from the compliance perspective. Now, the, the other two cases, they had different schemes. Uh, Fresenius, unfortunately, uh, and Tava probably, the robbery and corruption were baked into their entire worldwide business model. And that's why their fines and penalties were so much higher. But once again, we had a series of cases from one industry that I think the Department of Justice was able to crack the code in the way they did in the energy space um, to look at companies in a much more uh, flexible but robust manner. So uh, I guess what did uh, you see these cases mean from a prosecutorial perspective? Yeah, you, you know, with the with the energy cases that we talked about last time, um, I mentioned that, that I thought that prosecutors had unlocked this formula, kind of the hub and spoke model of, of investigation where you, you find the, the agent or the, the connecting party. And you, if they're doing it for one company, maybe they're doing it for others. Uh, I think this is a slightly different formula that they sort of unlocked with these, with these pharma cases. Um, and, you know, at least the DOJ, um, insists that they don't do industry sweeps. I think the SEC probably has a little bit more more authority to, to kind of look at an industry uh, overall, but uh, and perhaps does do formal industry sweeps. But what's clear here is that what what started probably with Lilly um, was, you know, we have a, a pharma company using a particular particular method. It's improper. To win business, is it possible that other pharma companies are doing the same thing? Um, and and you know, once they asked that question and started to 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 ask the right questions and request the right type of information from other pharma companies, the dominoes started falling. And uh, you know, we, we're talking about three here, but the the total list is is much larger. And when you really look at it and look at the schemes, it's kind of shocking how similar they are. Um, you know, they, 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 there's some differences, as you mentioned. Um, you know, there's there's traditional agents, there's the distributor model, there's a there's a set of schemes that involves just direct payments or or you know really high value gifts to doctors to to prescribe uh, pharmaceutical products. But it, it's it's really remarkable across companies how, how how similar these are. And I actually think, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the, the charity you mentioned in Poland, I think that that was actually that same charity received donations in a in a different FCPA case a few years prior to, to Lilly, so th so to me that's that's it. This 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 sort of I, I don't want to call it an industry sweep because I I know that that from the prosecutorial side that's not how they look at it. But um, this idea that all right we we've got we've got Lilly or we've got Teva, let's ask these same questions to another uh, another company doing business in these same same markets uh, and and see what we get and it. It was really, from a from a prosecutorial perspective, a successful model. I mean, the, the the number of pharma cases um, 
uh, really is 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 it's it's pretty high at this point, um, and it's it's from using this this type of approach. I misspoke on Presenius. That's a medical device company, not a pharmaceutical company. But these many of these strategies were used, and we saw some different bribery schemes uh, come in come into the fore, particularly around uh, hospitals and physicians. So, for instance. In some places, hospital administrators were bribed or payments were made to hospitals, but then the administrator would distribute those to the individual doctors who would prescribe the medications. Sometimes the doctors were uh, bribed directly, but there were other indirect bribes that were very uh, significant in the pharmaceutical and medical healthcare industry, such as conferences. And so uh, sending people to five-star resorts for five days of conferencing with their families uh, certainly became uh, something that went under scrutiny. Paying people for uh, speeches of five or ten or much more thousand dollars for either uh, a fake speech or a a very short speech uh, also came under scrutiny. And paying doctors for things like... um, scholarly articles that were never published uh, but came under scrutiny. So we had areas of the company of companies that perhaps had not received compliance or FCPA scrutiny uh, also uh, come under uh, some type of scrutiny. You mentioned in Lilly, uh, the predecessor or precursor to Lilly was sharing plow. And you're absolutely right. It was the same. It was not only the same charity. It was the same uh, Director General of the Salesian Health Service. And if, if you have a red flag from a prior SEC, if you have a named individual in charity from a prior SEC enforcement action, I'm not quite sure how much bigger a red flag you can have. Uh, so the information uh, was out there. But I work in the energy space in the first decade of this uh, year or this uh, century, and uh, charitable donations were not scrutinized. Closely, then we had a charitable foundation that made both domestic and international donations relatively small, but not given a lot of compliance oversight. So that became something uh, more to the fore, uh, particularly around uh, the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we also had, as I mentioned, uh, the hospital administrators. We saw in other cases, uh, particularly in China, uh, where the money would be distributed. And then the last thing, these cases. I think made people realize was outside of the United States, almost all healthcare is nationalized. And that means it's a state-owned enterprise, and that means FCPA implications. And whereas you and I probably wouldn't think of, of healthcare in that manner, uh, even you know in, in England and uh, every other country in the world, certainly in communist or former communist countries, but even countries like Mexico, healthcare is nationalized so that a payment to a doctor uh, is a bribe under the FCPA, and it got people, I think, thinking about the expansion of their view of who was covered under the FCPA. Uh, what are your thoughts on any of that, Mike? Yeah, I was going to mention that point about the the nationalized healthcare because um, you're you're absolutely right, and and we've seen later on um, where you know companies. Use these same these same types of models and schemes in the U.S. Implicate different laws when you do it in the U.S. than, than when you do it uh, outside the U.S. Um, 
but but absolutely i mean it, you know i think uh the it, it it i think it made uh companies sort of rethink um a, you know at, at this time especially with lilies we're talking about 2012 at this time you know this idea that obviously we know ministers and and members of royal families those are government officials and by this time soes uh you know in terms of you know uh, whether they're state-owned oil companies or, or or something like that, that had been sort of driven home. So everybody was, you know, really well well aware that those types of of individuals would be considered government officials. And it's starting with Lilly and then continuing on through this string of of whether it was pharma or medical device cases. This idea that all of the players in the in the in the medical industry outside of the U.S. are probably officials, all the way down from from nurses and doctors at the hospitals. All the way up to you know health ministers, and so it was a sort of a clear example of that. And I think that lesson probably expanded beyond the healthcare industry to lead uh, a lot of clients to to rethink about the parties they were interacting with and whether they might be um, government officials. You know, maybe they worked at a state university or, or something similar to that in the you know in a foreign country. One of the other things that I think struck me about this series of cases because uh, you you know you touched on it. They, they were doing speaking tours, they were, they were paying for articles, all of these things. Um, all of those, if done correctly, had a valid business justification because these were, uh, for the most part, experts in the field. Uh, and so people that they would have wanted to hire to come to a conference, to speak at a conference, so they would have wanted to have write an article about a particular medical device. It, it is, you know, it's, it's not black and white. <laughs> So done appropriately, done right, it would probably be fine. But but virtually across the board, um, these companies just took it too far. That they didn't, they, you know, they went to a, to speak at a conference and were paid an exorbitant fee and spoke for twenty minutes and then you know had a seven day vacation, or they were hired to write an article and never wrote it, um, which, which takes you know what would have been a a valid business expense and turns it into to a violation. You could almost say the same for the charitable contribution. I think that was was chosen um, as a violation for a reason, right? It was the timing of the payments was was really clear. There were emails showing that the intent of the payments were were to to curry favor with this official. In a in a different circumstance, those same exact payments probably aren't going to be touched by a prosecutor. Because as you mentioned, it was a this was a legitimate charity. The money went to the charity. It wasn't used as a as a pass through, as far as as far as we know, um, and they're relatively modest amounts. But you know, it's it's everything around the payments uh, that show the true intent of what they were used for. Under different circumstances, they probably would have been fine. So, Mike, I guess I wanted to ask you also in um, if you get a call uh, from a client, they've either received an inquiry, a subpoena, or They've just found something. How do you help them think through this really holistic approach? And if we can just stick with charitable donations, uh, have you done due diligence on the charity? You are the owners of the charity. Uh, is the is the charity be distributing the, the funds that are given it? And then um, how is the charity connected either uh, to the government official or is it there even an indirect benefit to the government official? Uh, how do you help them think through that more holistic approach? Yeah, you know, 
hopefully we get the call on the front end asking us to help them put in place a process for for their charitable donations. Um, and and that's I mean you've touched you've touched on the right things right it's it's diligence on the the recipient so what what is this organization is it a real charity now in this case that would have shown up that yes this is a legitimate charity what are the connections to any government officials if any how was this charity chosen so there's there's got to be some internal look at why are we picking this one right whose idea was it where did it come from how does this support our broader mission as a company and then. Very similar to third-party due diligence, uh, we always recommend that companies are following up to make sure the money w- went where they thought it was going to go. So, you know, you, you want to? I want to donate to this fund to help build a hospital. Let's make sure that the money actually went to build that hospital. Let's follow up afterwards. If you can donate in kind, that's always better than donating cash, right? Um, uh, so, so all of those, the, the process is, is different than third-party due diligence you might do on an agent, but the, the hallmarks are, are very similar in terms of, of what the company should be looking for uh, and how they should be following up. And then the final thing we, we really try to encourage our clients to do is, if possible, you should be, be publicizing all of your charitable contributions. Because if you're making this stuff public, it's less likely, not this isn't foolproof, but less likely to, to, to have some, some nefarious purpose and, and, you know, transparency is always better than not. You know, that's a key point that uh, I talked about early on in my FCPA commentary days, but it's, it's equally true today, which is sunlight is the best disinfectant and transparency is always critical. Uh, that was usually thought of around gifts and entertainment. Can you give this gift in front of the, uh, supervisors, employees, can they find out you took them to dinner? But equally important is the transparency around charitable donations, because as you said, if you can't publicly disclose it, there's probably a pretty good reason. Either the donation shouldn't have been made, couldn't have been made, or was made uh, with an illegal intent. So transparency is still a big part of compliance programs. And uh, this was really some of the first times particularly in the charitable donation space that I think transparency, transparency came to the fore. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it, it also, you know, for, for better or, or you know, worse for, for Lily, but for better for the industry overall, you know, up until this point, um, it was, it wasn't always easy to convince a, a client that they needed to put strict controls around charitable contributions. You know, is that really going to be considered a violation of the FCPA? Uh, you know, is, is this a high risk area? This was, this was sort of a poster child for it. Here you go. This is exactly what can go wrong to even to, to contributions to a, to a legitimate charity that are used for the, for the purpose, uh, that they were intended. Um, you know, this isn't, this isn't a situation where we had a, you know, somebody set up a sham foundation to funnel money to, to, to an official. This was a legitimate charity where, you know, as far as we can tell, the money that was donated went to restoring the castle or the castles. I think it was it was uh, supposed to be for for several renovations. But um, so this was this was a a nice example to be able to use to to convince clients to take this seriously. Now let me turn to Lily's and Lily and their distributor model in uh, Brazil because there were a lot of lessons at the time that I think we're still utilizing today. The process Lily had and they had a written process. We documented which was the following. There was a rigorous 
a due diligence process around the distributor. Then the information after it was vetted by compliance went to a distributor approval committee. That committee made a recommendation and it, it was approved at a next level up of senior management. The key was there was a range of discounts given to each distributor between 6 and 12%. The distributor in question with Lilly was given a 17% discount with no business justification for that uh, exception or a different discount. And of course, that extra 5% funded the bribe to pay to doctors. And this was, uh, I think, very instructive at the time because I don't, I'm not sure people had thought through uh, what is a distributorship approval process look like, and we had one. But equally importantly, you can make exceptions. You can override an internal control, but you have to document that with a business reason. Uh, and that's something I think we, we use today. So I was wondering how uh, valid or not valid do you, do you see that as an example of something that's really stood the test of time? Oh, absolutely. I, I, this is a, just a perfect example of the, the two things you just mentioned, right? One, hey, we have, we've done all this focus on agents. We we recognize that excessive commissions can be used for, for bribe payments. That is that is well understood across industries. What should we be doing with distributors? They seem like they're lower risk. How can they be used improperly? And, and this is exactly it. Um, and and this, this showed it. And we've seen this this sort of basic model used over and over and over again. But also to the to the business justification point, I, I think so many problems uh, in the third-party due diligence process can be addressed by really focusing on the business justification. Put, put the business people to it. Put, you know, make them justify this, not with just some, you know, we don't have resources or, or you know, it's a, really qualified third party, whatever. Put them to it, make them provide a real explanation for why we need a distributor, why they need to be paid with their, what kind of discount they're getting uh, and why why it should be this particular one. Uh, because once you, if you do that, if you make them really work for it, you can start to see um, sort of gaps in the story and 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 start to identify issues. And, and here, I mean, this is, again, this is a lot of, like a lot of these, this is an extreme example where you have this, significantly larger discount with no explanation provided really whatsoever. Um, and and it makes you wonder, you know, if they had asked the follow-up questions, what kind of response they would have gotten and, and whether this could have been sort of cut off at the pass. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I think we concluded that the, the Lilly case particularly not only stands the test of time, but we're still using many of the concepts put forward uh, today and uh, Teva and Fresenius also presented uh, some interesting aspects where we learned about uh, different ways or different funding schemes for uh, pots of money to create bribes. I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where we take a look at some tech cases. <laughs>